to the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. I'd like to study with you for just a little bit this morning on an expression that actually is found in uh, Isaiah 53 verse 2 where Isaiah writes that uh, the coming Messiah will be as a root out of a dry ground. I want to notice uh, particularly an expression that's found in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. The birth of Jesus Christ was in accordance with wisdom, in the way of wisdom, not the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God. Now Isaiah wrote in uh, Isaiah 53 verse 2, he said, um, you, you recall that, that tremendous chapter that's talking about the coming of the Messiah, and he says he will grow up as a root out of a dry ground. Who, you know, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Um, who knows the truth of the Messiah? You have to consider that expression, the root out of a dry ground. I believe that Matthew captures that meaning in its fullest context because he begins his uh, gospel account, his narrative of Jesus Christ with the genealogy of Christ. And remember that Matthew, which is the oldest of all the gospel accounts, it's the most, uh, they have literally found thousands of of, uh, translated, uh, preserved uh, accounts of Matthew that go all the way to the first century. It's the oldest and most numerous account of the birth of Jesus Christ in existence. And what's interesting to me is that Matthew is presenting Christ as the true king of Israel, the true king, the one that uh, was prophesied through all of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, I wrote myself a note uh, along this line. There are 53 quotations and 76 references to the Old Testament scriptures, That 129 references to the Old Testament scriptures in Matthew. And they are from 25 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now what that means is Matthew had a very specific focus in his gospel account. He wanted the Jewish people to understand that all of the Old Testament prophecies related to the Messiah are going to be fulfilled to perfection in one person, Jesus Christ. But have you noticed how he begins this wise account of the coming of Jesus Christ? Verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He begins this specifically to remind us that uh, the lineage with David is what connects Christ to the throne. And the lineage of Abraham is what connects him to the altar. So he begins with this Jewish context speaking about the king of the Jews to the people of the first century, the Jewish community of the first century. And he begins 
to uh, articulate the root out of the dry ground. He begins, and, and, and what's so significant about this, and you'll only find this in Matthew. He, uh, he uh, for time's sake, we're going to not read all, th- all, all the way through it, but there uh, in verse 5, uh, Solomon begat Boaz and, uh, of Rahab, which is, uh, which is Rahab. You know, Rahab was a Gentile harlot at Jericho. You know, a root out of a dry ground. Then we come on down to Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth wasn't even a Jew. Ruth was um, a Gentile. And yet she is found in the genealogy of the Messiah. We're in Matthew chapter 1. Then he he refers to a, a woman named Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was an adulterous wife of King David. And you see what he's doing, he's identifying the dry ground heritage that preceded the coming of the Messiah. It would not be according to the wisdom of men. It would not be something that you and I would even expect. But he's, he's going to present this in the factual, truthful way that this is the dry ground ancestry that pertained to Joseph and Mary. So we have Tamar, who was the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah, uh, who disguised herself as a prostitute in Genesis 38, uh, Rahab uh, in Joshua chapter 6, Ruth the Moabitess uh, is introduced to us through the book that bears her name, and she, remember, uh, she's the, the uh, mother of Jesse, who is the grandmother of King David, a root out of a dry ground. Do you see that? These are all objects of God's sovereign grace. But I want you to notice this too. In verse 11, we come to the reign of Jochaniah. And Jochaniah, uh, this is interesting. Remember, God placed a curse on Jochaniah. Uh, he, he said that there would never be an ascendant from his loins. Now that, that presents a special problem because he's in the lineage of the Messiah. Now if the curse that is placed on Jeconiah is to be intact for all generations, how could the Messiah ever come through that lineage? I'll tell you how. Because he would not be of the natural descent of Jeconiah. He would be the natural ascent of, of Mary, but not the natural descent of Joseph. So that curse didn't fall upon Christ that came through the blood lineage. So the, the curse of Jeconiah was actually reversed by the birth of Jesus Christ. But in his day, watch this. About that time, they were carried away captive, captive to Babylon, which is a foreign nation. And that's interesting because Jesus is the root out of the dry ground, would actually be a descendant of slaves, captives in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. A root out of a dry ground. And then we come to verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, 
of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. There's a de- in the Greek language, there's actually a definite article there. The, the Christ. Not one of the anointed, but the very anointed of God. Now I want you to notice something. All the way through this genealogical record, Matthew says, one begets another. One begets another. One begets another. But when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, the word begat is not there. And there's a reason for that. Jacob begat Joseph. That was the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Now somebody says, well, see, Joseph must have been the father of Jesus. But when you look at it constructively, you find that uh, the word whom in this verse is a pronoun, and it appears in the singular feminine uh, in the Greek language, which means that the whom there is not referring to Joseph. The whom there is referring to Mary. And Mary didn't begat Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit, amen, begat Jesus. All right, isn't that good? A root out of a dry ground. All right, so all the generations, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to uh, David were 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away of Babylon were 14 generations, and from the carrying away of Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. These, of course, are three historical uh, periods in the providential economy of, of God. Now, now this is, this is what I want to get to. Uh, Jesus Christ was born according to wisdom. Not the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God. And Matthew wants us to notice that in all uh, three major periods of Israel's history, the patriarchal period, period the, the patriot Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the monarchy period, where we start with King Saul, then King David, and the other kings, and then um, the uh, the dominated period where where Gentile nations ruled over uh, Israel. In all three of these periods, God was working out His will and timetable. He was working out um, the very people that had to be married and the very children that had to be born in order to produce, in his time and economy, Joseph and Mary. Isn't that amazing? And, and that's why he says the birth of Jesus Christ is uh, after this wisdom, this wise, in verse 18. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph... Now remember, a spousal, even today, by the way, even today in Orthodox Judaism, when a bride is a spouse to a husband, it is a formal and legal marriage. It's a formal legal. In, in fact, according to the language of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we could go to this morning, a betrothed couple, in order for them to separate, had to go through a formal divorce. 
So in the eyes of God, when they're betrothed to one another, they're actually married. But in the Jewish economy, um, when a young man is uh, betrothed to a young woman, the thing he has to do before he takes her as his formal wife uh, to live with him, he has to build her a house. He has to provide her a house to raise the family in. And uh, that connects us to John chapter 14, doesn't it? Where Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So that connects us to the book of Revelation where Jesus comes after the bride. You see, all of that fits into the Jewish mindset of betrothal. We're betrothed to Jesus Christ. And one day, he's coming for his bride. Now, uh, so Joseph is preparing a house for Mary during this period of betrothal. And to his amazement, uh, Mary, Mary is going to have a child. And you have to think about how you would feel about that. Uh, you, you'd, you'd have to understand that that, that that was a very serious thing in the Jewish economy. Uh, the law itself said that Mary, if she was guilty of adultery, there's only, there's, there's only one penalty that she can endure, and that's death. She would have to be stoned. Uh, you know, that's a, a very serious thing, and you can kind of feel the hurt that must have been experienced by Joseph on that occasion. But watch this story as it unfolds. Remember, we're talking about a root out of a dry ground. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, before he had the house finished, see, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he must have been something else. You know, uh, just think about this from the context uh, of, of God the Father. God the Father. Who would he entrust to be the earthly father of his son? He must have been something else. He was just described as a just man, a righteous man, a, a godly man. And he was chosen by God for this particular task. Here he is, a just man. Now what, watch this. And not willing to make her a public example. What did that mean? What did that mean? Have her publicly stoned. He was not willing to do that. Even before he knew how she came about her pregnancy, he loved Mary enough to protect her, to protect her from being stoned according to Jewish law. And he was minded to put her away privately. Only between his parents and their, her parents would anything be known. But while he thought <laughs> a root out of a dry ground 
while he thought on these things, behold, the angel the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not, don't, don't be afraid, to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now this is a, a tremendous passage and could actually take up the balance of our time uh, this morning, but, but I just want you to see this context, this contextual commentary on the wisdom of God in the providing of His Son. You see, in the wisdom of man, we, we would have had uh, the Messiah born perhaps to uh, a regal ruler like Caesar in the palaces of Rome where, where automatically he would be invested with a great deal of regal authority and, and royal pomp. Or perhaps we would have him born in the um, marble halls of the Sanhedrin where the religious influence would be bestowed upon him automatically. Maybe connected to people like Nicodemus or uh, Joseph of Amarathea, uh, these wealthy, wealthy Pharisees and Sadducees of his day. If, if it was the wisdom of men, we certainly wouldn't uh, ascribe to a root out of a dry ground. But what, is, what does God do? God chooses a carpenter, a simple carpenter. He, he chooses a young maiden named Mary impoverished. We know that they're very poor because they didn't even they couldn't even afford a lamb to take to the temple. In Luke's gospel, uh, you know, they had to get some turtle doves, which is the offering of the poor. Uh, uh, two turtle doves, two turtle doves for an offering would be one tenth of a penny. And that's all they could scrape together. A root out of a dry ground. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. You keep building that house. You keep preparing for that day when she'll be brought to you by her parents. Uh, I know that, the, you know, uh, in our generation, uh, it's really fallen on hard times, you know. Uh, I, I, I can remember uh, my, my sister, my, my, I had one sister, and and one of her high school buddies uh, uh, came to get her for a date. And he was in the driveway and honked his horn. And my dad said, who in the world is that? And my sister said, well, Daddy, that's, that's my boyfriend, and he's going to take me to a movie. And he said, oh, he's not either. And my dad walked out to the driveway, and he says, can I help you, son? And he says, I'm here for your daughter. And he says, no, you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to pick her up today. Right now, uh, the movie starts in 20 minutes, and I'm, I'm going to take her to a movie. He said, no, you're not. I remember those days, you know, and, 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 and today, in today's economy, that would be considered abuse. Yeah. Uh, but he says, but you don't understand, I'm, we're going to be late. He said, no, you don't understand, you're going to be late if you don't leave right now. But my dad had something to say about him picking up 
his daughter. And, of course, my dad had a, a nice little sit-down with my sister. And I still remember it to this day. Now, now, she eventually married that young man. But it was after that young man met my dad. And understood that there were some rules in his house. And propriety was uh, to be... Uh, and by the way, all 16 of those dates that my sister had with that young man, I was sitting between them. So you know exactly. So I know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that was rule number one. And we had an old porch swing, and my dad never oiled the hinges. Because he said, if, the, if that swing stops squeaking, Mama, you take him some lemonade. <laughs> My dad understood some things. And he was a pastor and a carpenter. And, uh, and he understood propriety. Now, in the day of Joseph and Mary, it was a very significant issue to be betrothed. You were under the watch care of the whole community. And everybody was about propriety. And Joseph knew that. And he knew that if he exposed Mary, this young virgin, to the uh, scrutiny of that community, it would end up in her death. So he was willing to put her away privately between parents only. And that would remove that uh, uh, stigma from her. You see the, the way he loved her? Even before they came together, he loved her. And I respect that in Joseph. He might have been poor, but he was a just man. And uh, verse 21, my, my favorite verse in this chapter, and you know it by heart, I'm sure. And she shall bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now think about this just a moment. Here is the angelic record of why the root was to be born out of dry ground. Why the incarnation was so critical. Now, you would ask someone, uh, did, they, did Mary bring forth a son? They would say yes. Did they call his name Jesus? They would say yes. Did he save his people from their sins. You see, to be consistent, we have to say yes. Some might say, well, it depends on the people. It depends on the choice of the people. But wait a minute. That's contrary to the logistics of this verse. Just as sure as she had a son, just as sure as she called his name Jesus, he saved his people from their sins. You see, the birth of Jesus Christ was according to divine wisdom. He was born at a particular time 
He was born in a particular way. He was born for a particular uh, purpose. And he was born to save a particular people. To be consistent with the birth story of Jesus Christ, you must appeal to divine wisdom. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle Paul said that uh, Jesus uh, came at, in due time, Christ was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. You see, the very character of the coming of Christ was to deliver, was to save. It was to uh, do something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And Matthew's account is showing us who this king is and what this king has done. And, 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 and we can rejoice in that, uh, during, especially during this particular season. Because if Christ had not come, there would be no salvation. There would be no hope. There would be no gospel. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a very vital part of the Christian uh, gospel, vital part of the Christian message, that, that God himself invaded the darkness of man. He came into the dry ground reality that is left by sin to take the sins of his people and to pay the price for them. When Jesus hung upon the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is paid in full. What did he mean? What did he mean? He meant that the debt that our sins incurred against divine justice had been fully compensated, had been fully satisfied. Salvation through this one came according to God's wisdom. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came among you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, for I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, brothers and sisters, I have a lot of problems with Christmas. I don't like the pagan aspects and the commercial aspects connected to this time of year, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that there's a time of year when everyone has to consider the wisdom that sent the Son of God into the earth. I know that there's a lot of different views on the celebration of this holiday, but I believe that we can celebrate it in a right way when we remember uh, the, the context in which Jesus was born, when we, when we remember Matthew's account, when we remember why it was so crucial for Christ to come and save us from our sins. I believe that we can rejoice and don't you just love the music that they play this time? It, it, it's glorifying to the Lord. So at this season, when we're all thinking about it, I think as Christians, we can use this season to share our faith with the people around us 
and to tell them that it uh, has nothing to do with that pine tree. It has, it has nothing to do with, uh, uh, you, you, you know, like holiday Christianity. The only time we go to church is on Easter and Christmas, you know, that kind of Christian mess. But we can share with them the wisdom of God that brought about the root out of the dry ground. We, we can share with them the details and the intricacies of the things that had to come to pass, the things that had to be fulfilled to perfection. Give me just a few minutes to give you an example. Have you ever thought about this? Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. I actually have been to Nazareth. And, you know, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of, of, of actually seeing the ancient city of Nazareth and the hill that they were going to cast uh, Christ off of. Remember, they took him out of the synagogue and was going to throw him off this hill uh, because they found bones at the bottom of this hill where in the first century they did things like that. Well, I've been there. But one of the things that I've noticed is that Nazareth is about a three-day walk a three-day journey away from Bethlehem. And remember, Mary is nine months pregnant. Can you imagine how difficult that journey must have been for her? But Jesus, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, had to be born in Bethlehem. Even though they were citizens of Nazareth, they had to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus had, they had to come to the city of Bethlehem for the Messiah to be born. That's the wisdom of God. And God raised up an emperor named Caesar Augustus that made it uh, mandatory for them to go to that very city that the prophet said Jesus had to come. See, this is the wisdom of God. Now, if God's wisdom is portrayed in such glowing detail in, about his first coming, if, if, that, if that's so critical, if that's so important for us to understand and rejoice in this morning, how much more detail, how much more glory is going to be connected to his second coming? You see, that's why we can rejoice we can rejoice and be happy and glad in the observance of the birth of our Savior because the surety of his second coming is dependent upon the reality of his first coming. It is because of his first coming being according to God's wisdom that we know that there's an appointed day, a time when he's going to appear a second time. Amen? Can you, can you kind of rejoice in that? Because, because that's what this story is about. Now, uh, give me a few minutes to, to just go to chapter 2 real quick. I, I want to show you something. This, this means a lot to me. And when Jesus was born, chapter 2 of Matthew, and when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men, from the east to Jerusalem. And, and I like that statement, wise men still seek him. Wise men still do. 
today. And they're saying this. They're saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Matthew's gospel is intentional to show that Christ did not come to be born a king or, or, or to become a king. He was born a king already. The, the natural birth of Jesus Christ in the earth is not the beginning of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ existed before. As John says, in the beginning was the Word, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. That's Jesus. Jesus existed beforehand, but now God has uh, become a man. And, and, and there's a lot of controversy uh, over the kenosis, what Jesus laid aside to become a man. But, I, but I, I, I believe with all my heart this morning that Jesus was not half God and half man. He was all God and all man. And as a God-man, He was a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. That's why He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. But... But here's, here they're asking this question, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I believe that that was a, a miraculous star. I, I, I don't believe that that's a natural. Uh, I don't believe it was Saturn. I believe it was a star that was created by God to show the wise men where the king was to be born. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. You better believe he was. He was a nut. And all Jerusalem was with him. You know, if you study anything about Herod, you know he, he, uh, he had two sons that uh, were in line to be kings uh, in Judea, uh, Judah and, uh, Judea, and he had them poisoned. He had his wife beheaded because somebody said that she was against him being king. You know, he was, he was just a, a crazy man. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, you know, this priestly aristocracy. And when he had gathered the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ would be born. We're going to go to the Bible now because we're in trouble. We're going to go to the Bible only when we're in trouble. But uh, I need to know where he was, where he's to be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, because they knew what Micah five two actually said. And uh, verse seven. And then uh, Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the the star appeared. Uh, the time frame for that star was about two years. And. Um, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring him word again that I would come and worship him also. Now I want this verse to sink in. Did Herod want to worship the Messiah? Was that, was that his intent? So he was deceiving these wise men. He was saying, Oh yeah, you, you find him and I'll come and worship him with you. Did you know the world's full of people just like that today? Just like that today. They have no desire to worship the king. 
they have a desire to find, find those that do and persecute them. Verse 9, when they had heard the king that they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them. See, it's a miraculous star. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. Notice it's not the baby anymore, right? It's, it's not the babe in the manger anymore. It's a young child. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, not the barn, not the cave, not the main, you know, the, 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 like they say in the, the Philippines, the cow's house. Not, not that. But they come into a house where they were staying. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense of myrrh. Now, this is where I want to conclude. It's a house, not a stable, that we read about in Luke 2, and we'll hear about later this morning. But they gave three kinds of gifts. These gifts were prophetic in nature. You'll find these gifts in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. What did the gold represent? what, What did these gifts really mean? And by the way, have you noticed this, brothers and sisters? They didn't start giving gifts to one another. They didn't give gifts to one another. They gave gifts to the Lord. They brought what they had to the Lord. And these gifts are very symbolic. The gold represents his royalty. He is the king. The frankincense represents his deity. You read about this in Leviticus chapter 3. We don't have time to do this, uh, but in Leviticus chapter 3, the frankincense is always connected to the high priest and the sacrificial offerings that were offered under the law system. But it represented his deity because he, as God, was worthy of this expensive gift. And then what I want to get to is the myrrh. The myrrh represents his humanity. Myrrh was used uh, in burial. Uh, in fact, in John chapter 19, 39, when they took Jesus down from the cross and wrapped him in the, in the swaddling clothes, uh, uh, they put myrrh, an ointment, inside the folds of that cloth. It was a very common practice to use myrrh in the time of burial. So it spoke of his humanity. Matthew is writing this in a Jewish context so that they would connect these gifts with the true king of Israel, the true king, Jesus Christ. And he said he received of Gentiles gold uh, because he was king, frankincense, as our high priest, and myrrh, myrrh, as our prophet. Now, in conclusion this morning, I want you to think about what you want to share with your family during this season, your children, your grandchildren. I think, it's, I think it behooves us 
to remind our families and our neighbors and friends and those in the sphere of our influence that, that Christmas season is speaking about the first coming of Christ as a root out of a dry ground. He would, he, he would come to the leper to cleanse him. He, he would come to the lame man to make him whole. He would come to the blind to make him see and the deaf to make him hear. And he would come to the dead to make him alive. I believe that this season gives us a huge evangelistic opportunity to share the true gospel with the people around us so that we never minimize his first coming. So we never minimize the extent and the enormity of his great sacrifice. And when we talk about Mary, she's not blessed above women. She's blessed among women. When we talk about Joseph, we're talking about a, 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 a man that uh, Jesus was legally adopted by. And, um, and, and, and was a, a rightful heir as the firstborn in his house. And when we talk about the babe in the manger, we're talking about the God of heaven exercising divine wisdom to bring about redemption for a people that would be called by his name. All of this is the result of the root out of the dry ground. God bless you. Thank you for your good attention. Let's take a short break and we'll come back together by singing.